right, jumping right in. First question, what do you think is the biggest challenge with complying with the IVDR? Is it the PER or is it something else? Do you want to start, Amy? I think it's probably just that it's all so new for manufacturers. I mean, the, you know, the majority of manufacturers have not had to do, it's been self-certified. So they haven't had to put together their technical documentation for external conformity assessment. And in a lot of cases, you know, if the devices have been around for a long time, for several decades, that kind of historical data may not be easy to access. And it could be also that they've been relying on suppliers or original OEMs from, say, China or other other countries, or maybe the original documentation is in is in another language, is not in English. So I think it's that whole kind of challenge of getting from where they are now to this whole idea of almost everything being regulated, and, and what's the extent to which they have to reconstruct files. Yep, I would agree with that. It's just in my experience and, and what we've been seeing with some of our clients is it's just overwhelming. You know, largely IVDD isn't completely different than IVDR, um, but it's it's really the whole concept of putting it all together, understanding what is required and how you're going to put it together in a way that's going to meet your notified body's expectations. Um, so the you know the requirements are sort of new or massaged expectations for IBDD, but it's that slight difference that really makes it overwhelming for a lot of folks, especially since they are new to interacting with notified bodies. Yeah, it's very true, actually, Felicia. Um, over 90% of IVDs haven't been regulated before, so they've been self-certified, so they've never had any notified body scrutiny, and that's been flipped, and more than 90% um, mm -hmm. will be will require notified body scrutiny. So focusing on the, oh, go ahead. I was just thinking, you know, the, the, the extent to which um, manufacturers complain about the detail that notified bodies give to their files, I, I think they probably haven't realized exactly what that level of scrutiny is going to be like. It, it, there's a high probability that it's going to be a higher level of scrutiny than they're expecting. Because I remember actually a, a manufacturer asking me, oh, when they do my technical file assessment, are they just going to be ticking boxes to make sure things are there? Are they going to actually look at the evidence? It's like, no, no, no. They're absolutely going to look at the evidence and they're going to be making sure that it sounds. So, yeah, I think that there's still some surprises to be had there. Mm -hmm. yes. So focusing on the PER, now, why is the PER so challenging and, and how is it different from the CER that we're just so used to talking about all the time? Marianne, do you want to start? Yeah, um, well, under the um, PERs are, have always been required under IVDD, but not as a um, uh, an explicit requirement. Um, so I think now that under the IVDR, there's a huge expectation. We've got Annex 13. We know we have to write PRs. The depth of those PRs have to be, you know, in accordance with the with the product and the classification. Um, unlike CRs, where we've we've got a lot of guidance, we've got specific guidance, the MedDev uh, 2.7/1 Rev4 guidance. We don't currently have that specific guidance for PRs, although it should be out soon. Actually, new guidance from the um, uh, the Medical Device Coordination Group. So we're in a bit of a vacuum as far as how we write our PRs, and we're using some of the MedDev guidance to help us write our PRs. Um, so, for example, the, the literature searches can be, you can use the methodology that's laid out in the in the MedDev guidance to help you. But PRs are very different from CRs. You know, we're not, with a CR, you're not generally looking back at all the analytical data. You might look at some of the preclinical data, particularly if it's a new device on the market. 
but for PRs, you're looking at the analytical performance, you're also looking at your scientific validity, and then obviously your clinical performance. So it's it is there are a lot of differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Marianne, I, I think that's so true, especially like the RA perspective really paints that picture about why it's so challenging. And then there's the practical side of the volume of reports for IVDs and data to search through for that PER and looking at all the evidence is you know monumental compared to a device, I'd say, because for every endpoint, you're likely to have a report or have to support the endpoint with, with some data. And so whether it's the scientific validity, the analytical, if we're talking about sensitive, sensitivity, specificity, the yeah. precision, accuracy, all those things need to have that support. And so you have to drill down like an additional level of detail compared to a device. So I think it's like the regulatory side that you're saying, but also the complexity of reviewing the data from a practical perspective. Yeah, very true. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other side of that is, you know, if you kind of analogous to when MDD added new categories devices or new requirements for devices, there was, a, there was an expectation that, oh, but this has been on the market forever, so I don't need to meet that. All I've got to do is say I've been on the market forever and I have high sales and low complaints and that'll be fine. But in practice, no, no, it, it's, it's not going to work that way. So I think kind of bridging that gap of actually getting that evidence together, I think is potentially very challenging. And, and, you know, if I think about what happened under MDD and that kind of pain point, there's potentially the, the same kind of pain point coming up because the, the IVDR and the MDR have made it very explicit. There's no grandfathering. So if you imagine the kind of issues that we had under MDD when they, when kind of the idea of grandfathering was sort of semi-acknowledged and now it's explicitly, no, it's not accepted. You guys weren't doing it right before. You've got to do it right now. I, I think, yeah, there's some challenges ahead. So we're hearing a lot of feedback from IVD companies that they're like struggling to get their intended purpose uh, statement, you know, honed in. So how critical is it to have, uh, you know, a good specific compliant intended purpose statement in terms of framing your PER? So I would say that's mission critical. I mean, it is fundamentally, it is probably the most important statement because um, your intended purpose for those folks that are similar or excuse me that are more familiar with us intended purpose is basically the same as your intended use so that in addition to your indications really sets the foundation right for the rest of the technical documentation um, and it drives your overall performance requirements so performance requirements related to scientific validity analytical performance clinical performance and ivdr really stresses um, that an IVD's performance depends on its intended purpose. Um, you know, more than to just establishing it, one of the things that I think that I've seen the most is it's really important that that statement is also consistent across all of your documentation. The devil is in the details, right? The verbiage matters and an intended purpose is also a claim. So when you have your intended purpose statement, it's also your overall net impression. So you want to make sure that the information that you have um, in your documentation, your statement is consistent and how it is perceived in the rest of your information, even your marketing literature is consistent. 
Very true. Actually, yeah, I think everything flows from the intended purpose statement and how specific and how tight you are in terms of what clinical indications you're looking at. So if you've got very broad, broad clinical conditions, you know, you say all, all types of soft tissue neoplasms, that's a huge, huge amount to look at to be able to support. So you have to be really careful with your intended purpose statement to make it not too specific, but not too broad so that you can't support it with your clinical evidence and your analytical performance. Yeah. Uh, actually, the, the other thing is making sure that there actually is a medical purpose. Because, you know, historically something's been on the market and it was just kind of known to be used in these sort of diagnostic settings, but they didn't explicitly say what the medical purpose of it was, what disease condition is it supposed to diagnose, et cetera. Then yeah. that, that'll be a definite gap and you might get your notified body saying, well, this isn't a medical device, this isn't an IVD, we can't certify it. So that definitely needs to be uh, remediated as well. Definitely. And then Amy, do you expect that to be a... Do you expect that to be a big finding with the notified bodies, Amy? Do you expect this to be common for IVD companies? Oh, we're already getting feedback on that, that, you know, saying, oh, BSI said that this isn't an IVD, but we need to maintain our, you know, our CMR for registration purposes. How do we, how do we attach an intended, how do we find a medical purpose for this? Or how do we define our medical purpose? So yeah, we've, we're definitely already getting feedback of that kind. Marianne, oh, sorry, go ahead, Celeste. Oh, I, I was going to say that for the, uh, intended purpose when you are consistent across all the documents that's used so heavily in the PER, whether it's to define search terms for the public database searches for adverse events and recalls, like in your safety section, it's going to be used in the PSER uh, or PMS report, depending on class. So the intended purpose is used even in other ways for like public database searches and for your searches of the clinical and performance literature in the PEP. Uh, so there's a lot of like ways that that um, is used in the documents. And actually, you've just yeah. made me think as well, it's going to be critically linked to the SSP, which the summary of safety and performance, which would then be a publicly available document. So like all the evidence that you've got to support it is linked to your intended purpose and then is available for anyone with an internet connection to, to investigate. <laughs> And, and Marianne, too, what you said about a, a broad intended purpose reminds me of something. It used to be a strategic approach from a regulatory mm -hmm. aspect to keep your intended use or indications for use statement broad. Total marketing advantage because you wanted the ability to commercialize um, mm -hmm. the product as widely as possible. But now how we're seeing that play out from a PER perspective is mm -hmm the burden in which you have to collect the information and say, say you generally say soft tissue, well, that could mean uh, muscle, it could mm -hmm. mean, or I mean, it, it, it has it such a broad, yeah. yeah, that the now then the expectation would be that when you're putting together your PER, you need to make sure that in all the areas that you know the device can be used is covered, otherwise, then you're creating a situation for your post-market, uh, your PMPF plan, that you have to do additional work now because perhaps you weren't specific enough. Absolutely, yeah, good point, yeah. Okay, next question. Um, how much evidence would be required for a class D as compared to classes B and C? What do you think, Amy? Well, theoretically, there's not, I mean, yeah, there's some additional requirements for say class D devices. But in terms of 
the quality of evidence or what you're trying to demonstrate, there's not really a difference on the basis of class. It's more on the basis of actual risk and what could go wrong. So, you know, again, we're kind of probably linking back to the intended purpose, but also the way it's used and, and who it's used with. So I think I always used to say that the scientific validity of something, and all these things are always attached to scientific validity, and scientific validity is not attached to a risk classification. It's attached to what are you trying to demonstrate? I don't know if that's a very good answer, but it's, it's, yeah. yeah, there's some more explicit requirements, but theoretically, if you're trying to demonstrate something and show it with a certain level of validity, it's not going to be on the basis of classes, on the basis of what are you trying to show? What is the variability of the population you're trying to show it with? What are the impacts of that on the statistics and so on? And maybe an example of that, Amy, would be like a class B, like reagents or control, something like that, um, is you're still going to have to assess for that product, like all the analytical and clinical endpoints and determine which of these is relevant for that product. And you have to do that same ex exercise if it's a class C or D, and you may have more that are relevant or it may be the same, like the positive and negative failures, right? That's going to be probably still relevant for um, a risk of a reagent or a control uh, if it could influence that in some way. and so it's really like assessing all the endpoints um, and determining what's applicable to the product based on you know, the risk versus the class. We have a couple industry questions. First one is similar to this topic. Um, do class A IVDRs need to have clinical studies completed? Who wants that one? Do they need to have clinical studies? It probably depends exactly what it is. I'm going back to what it is. I would venture that um, if I would venture that probably most of them don't depending on what they're going to do but they, they need to have evidence that's appropriate like proportionate to what they're trying to demonstrate the thing with the class A's is if they're not going to receive any notified body scrutiny who's going to check and see that a clinical study was done so I think it comes down to what are you trying to show the device can do what are the risks of it not doing it appropriately? And what level of evidence do you need to demonstrate that it does that? But the point at which we get checked would be if your competent authority or other person is auditing you and then looks at that file, but it's not a barrier to registration, if that makes sense. If it's with that, if it, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say with that, with what you said, Amy, too, what I would think would be important from a regulatory perspective is a documented justification. A robust documented justification. So if you're going to performance evaluation, it's just whether yeah. as part of that they need to do a clinical investigation. That was that, but yes. all of them are going to need that performance evaluation report. So sorry, sorry yes. to interrupt. Yes. Yep. No, 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 no. That's fine. I was going to say just just a justification of their pathway and why um, having that documented so that, like you said, if the competent authority challenges it six months a year down the line you know they have it in writing what their thought process was and how they arrived at doing what they did or what they didn't do yeah i think that goes yeah. across the board actually you know if you document why you did something and it's clear that it was you know hopefully in the best interest of the patient and what you're and that you know that what you're trying to demonstrate yep. and not because you just didn't want to pay for a study and that <laughs> always goes a long way to to, to, to helping um you know sort of smooth any of those potential non-compliances can I just add, okay. you, you need to look at all your data, don't you, in the round. So you may not need to go down the route of doing an investigation if you've got published clinical evidence that you can claim is equivalent to your device, or if it's 
equipment that's a class A then using the, the kits, the assay kits that are used with that equipment to demonstrate clinical performance. So I imagine a lot of the class A's don't need to have their own studies, but it's case by case. And as Felicia just said, it has to be justified. Okay, next question from the audience. Um, hmm, this one's a little loaded. What is your opinion of MedTech Europe's publication, Clinical Evidence Requirements for CE Certification Under Diagnostic Regulation in the European Union? What's your opinion of it? That was released in May this year, wasn't it? The document. I looked at it then, and I thought, actually, it's quite a good industry perspective. Obviously, it's not the notified body or the competent authorities perspective, so we have to be really careful about looking at um, any of those other documents that are to make sure that we're uh, yeah we're not misinterpreting things but yeah it's certainly a good document to look at i've i've used it i think um when the the analogous document under for for mdr was not as far it was far from where the commission wanted it to be in terms of advice i think though what what i what i noticed is there was a a level of pragmatism for ivds that was higher than the level of pragmatism for for under mdr so when I say pragmatism, it's probably still not exactly where a lot of manufacturers would like it to be. It's going to be less pragmatic than they'd like it to be in terms of the commission and competent authority notified body expectations. It may be that that MedTech um, guide, Europe guidance is closer to what the commission's expecting. Because I know when it came out, similar guidance for MDR, the commission were less, less happy with that. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, next question. How do you define state of the art for IVDs? I'll go with this one. He's starting. Okay. Okay. Well, it's it's not necessarily the most cutting edge technology. It has to be considered the best in terms of, uh, sorry, good practice in terms of of technology and the clinical, the med medical area that you're looking at. So, um, how do we assess that? We look at our literature. We look at the guidelines, the clinical practice guidelines, and determine whether we still consider the devices state of the art. So it's still good clinical practice in that particular setting for that particular condition, et cetera, and prevalence and so on. So it's not necessarily the most cutting edge technology. It has to be one that's considered a good practice still. I think, you know, the other thing is that you're looking at what are, what are the options out there? What are the diagnostic options available? It may not even necessarily be an assay. But, you know, so if, if you want to diagnose whether this patient has this particular condition or disease or, or whatever it is, what's available, how accurate are they, what are the risks of things going wrong? And then when you weigh all of that up, um, you need to be able to demonstrate that, that your product is comparable, you know, and if it, if, it, if it, for example, falls down in some areas and it's got benefits in other areas, you've got to be able to weigh up the risks and benefits of all the different um, diagnostic options out there. Question from the audience. Uh, what kind of data is expected for near patient testing? Is clinical literature review and a usability study enough? I would say usability studies or human factor studies would be needed generally um, because it's near patient. It's not being used in a lab setting by highly trained personnel. You know, it could be a doctor, it could be a paramedic, a nurse, care assistant. So it has to be road tested and those human factor usability studies are really important. So that's, that's okay, I think, next. an additional thing you have to think about. Okay, next question. Uh, what are the key sources of clinical evidence for IVDs? What's the first, Felicia? So I would say at a basis, like your verification validation testing, 
literature, you know, verification validation are both in-house like bench type studies or clinical studies. Um, so, for example, if you want to support scientific validity, you could look at things like um, relevant information from, you know, analytes, markers from the literature, what's out there today. You can look at um, clinical studies, so be it direct clinical experience with use with your device or maybe an indirect clinical experience. So that's observational studies or a theoretical frameworks and models. Um, so a lot of times people, you know, rely on literature, but I think the, your internal testing, um, your real world evidence, you know, is, is really important to serve as uh, sources for um, clinical evidence. Definitely. And then you're looking to like expand or find additional evidence and it's important even tagging along with the state-of-the-art definition of what else is out there like maybe you have a new a diagnostic and the only other methods are like a GC mass spec or HPLC or you know an ELISA assay so then comparing um, that literature to the other methodology and doing an assessment there um, or looking at if you have to perform additional test reports to ensure that you're capturing as many endpoints as possible uh, in those bench tests. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Okay, next one. How is equivalence used for IVDs and what are the key pitfalls? It's a confusing one for the EU. Amy, start with you. Yeah, so I, I think um, if we, we don't know until we start seeing things going through in, in large numbers and get that feedback from the notified bodies, but if we look at our experience under the directives and the MDR. I think it's not going to be enough just to show that it's, you know, um, you know, got the same reagents and analytes or whatever it is. It's not going to be enough to show that all those things are similar or that it's used in the same conditions and by the same people and, and the samples are taken in the same way. It's not, that won't be enough. I think you're really going to have to have some comparative testing and probably quite exhaustive comparative testing because even like, for example, with, with medical devices, you know, under MDR, we're seeing increasing emphasis on comparative testing and I would have thought for IVDs that would be even more critical given that it's not like a physical widget that you can measure and give a material for necessarily and, and you know do your wear testing or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead Marianne. I was just going to agree with Amy. I think comparative text testing is really required if you want to show equivalence to another product generally yeah. unless you've got other other data, some QC testing, but yeah, you need to yep. do the testing. With comparative testing too, I think uh, an intuitive, with that thought of mine, an intuitive place to start is like with the US um, substantial equivalence guidance, your 510K pathways, the need for equivalent or equivalent devices, or excuse me, for your 510K, you're, you're needing that equivalent device. So a lot of, I think the approach that I've seen most often is starting there and then really trying to build your story when it comes to your technical documentation. It's a baseline. It's not the same. Um, I mean, you look at things like performance, um, your analyte and your performance in a clinical setting, but you also want to take into consideration like your technological considerations, um, your user. So it's a whole slew of information. But I think a lot of people generally start with 
sort of that U.S. definition because I, I think it's a little bit better defined or it's something that we're mo more familiar with because we don't have that explicit guidance with IVDR yet, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, question from the audience. Um, can one analyze data generated by diagnostic laboratories in daily routine and use it as clinical evidence? Yeah, if it's published. Like yeah, and real world evidence is really what yeah. that is for IBDs. I think probably yeah, just, if the device is already on the market, then it would count as post-market data and under the, you know, so from their prior use of it. So I think you could actually get that in, but if it was just being, if it was a new device, I'm just thinking, yeah, no, actually it would have to have been on the market in order for that to happen. Because there's that kind of get out clause in the clinical evidence description, which effectively says you can use post-market data. So, sorry, Marianne, you were about to say something. Yeah, I was just going to add that it has to be published, published QC evidence, not, not internal evidence that you've got QC testing. It's not, not admissible under IVDR, so it has to be published. Examples would be things like Nordic QC, um, other external QC assessment centres that publish. Okay, another question from the audience. Um, how does one understand how many scientific literatures are to be reviewed to support the CER? CPR. Well, that's a good is there question. An, yeah, is there an ideal sample size that one needs to look at while reviewing these literatures? Also, if there is no statistical analysis done in the literature, how can one justify the use of a small sample size? Well, that's a few questions put together. Um, I would say in terms of how exhaustive your literature search, it's, it, there's two bits of it. So when you're looking at your scientific validity, you may not need to be as exhaustive. You know, if you can establish scientific team by effectively there's clinical best practice guidelines or things that have come from, I don't know, reference labs or whatever, or, you know, systematic reviews, then it is not necessary to retrieve every single article ever written on the subject if, if there's, you know, obvious sources available. But when it comes to data on your own device, then it has to be exhaustive. You have to have to retrieve everything. Now, it might be that you retrieve them and you say, well, actually, this study is not valid because we don't have any kind of statistical evaluation or the study design is fundamentally flawed, but you have to actually at least look at it and explain why you're not incorporating it into your results. So you've got kind of two different things. And that actually, I'm thinking there's another element to that as well, because I suppose if you're claiming equivalence, then you've got to consider where do you draw the line on equivalence? Are there 10 different products exactly like yours that you have to retrieve data for? Or do you, you know, maybe want to cast the, the, the net a little bit narrower? So. Yeah, would you say, Amy, that you'd need to go back to at least the date of launch of your CEMAR, uh, your CEMAR yeah. product? And if you're going to claim equivalence to another product, um, we've got a recent example where they're using research use only products as equivalents, which generally have been launched before the CEMARC. So we're going back and we're doing date and limited searches so that we capture everything. So I think having exhaustive searches is, is important. And then you can obviously screen out the ones that don't meet your criteria and don't meet... Yeah. yeah, I mean, essentially, you've got to include all relevant data because one of the things that I think the commission are particularly concerned about is that manufacturers might cherry pick data. So they're only like giving the really, really good results and they're hiding all the stuff that looks a little bit more dodgy. And, you know, you need to include it all, but you can definitely make justifications for, you know, no, this study is not valid because of X, Y, and Z reason. Very true. Um, yeah, so it's got to be the good and bad, really. We have a couple questions from the audience related to the same topic about. Is it okay, or how do you justify using 
US uh, population data, um, either in human factor studies or clinical studies to support the EU requirements? Can it be justified? I hope so. <laughs> I would say that the problem with the same criteria as for MDD and MDR apply, which is if you can justify that clinical best practice is equivalent to clinical best in, best practice in, in the EU. So it's, it's not being used in a different way. If you can justify that the patient population is representative of a European patient population, which generally it is considered to be, but it, you know there could be cases where maybe if a particular condition is, is very prevalent in the US or it's much more expressed to a much greater degree, then it, that might call some of those things into question. But if you can say that, you know, provide your justifications for why, you know, um, the clinical best practice is the same, the patient population is the same, if, you know, you're making reference to compliance to, to clinical standards and whatever, or justifying the differences in, in um, you know, how that study was conducted, then, then that data should be usable. Okay, next one. How do you demonstrate scientific validity for legacy devices that are so well established that no one wants to publish anything about them and scientific validity is taken for granted? Go ahead, Marianne. Okay, well, you've still got to do your searches. You've still got to look at your literature. You know, even if it's something like a gram stain, which has been around for a long, long time, you still need to, to look at your literature. Um, I don't think the, the depth of the literature searches needs to be what you would need for a class C or D, but you would still need to look and you'd look at your other data to do with the QC testing or, you know, um, other performance measures, but you you still need to look. You can't say it's it's been around forever and it's still, we don't need to grandfather it in, so. Yep. And the, the level of detail and the um, scientific validity, even test reports may, need to be like evaluated and uh, just determine like does do the benefits outweigh the risk right like it always should come back to risk and maybe the um all the test reports aren't there but is there enough data that like let's say like graham um, tests a great example uh, it's so accepted that you know the benefit may outweigh the risk in this case and you could even justify that in the justification and rationale of the PMPF, for example. It just depends Take on, it. I think, also like the the risk that the manufacturer is willing to accept and how detailed they can talk that through with their notified body. Okay, we're almost out of time. We're going to do one more. What should a manufacturer do if they don't have a reference method? What is what what is a reference method? Who can help there? Okay, I'll, I'll chip in here. Um, well, really, it's a method that you're using to show the truth, to show that you've got, mm -hmm. ideally, it should be the gold standard reference method. It could be a completely different method from the, from the IVD, um, or it could be one that's not considered a gold standard. So you're, you do several different methods and you have a composite reference standard. Um, and you're using that to show the accuracy compare against your IVD. Now, if you don't have a reference standard, um, then you need to then look at using a reference material and one with metro metrological testing uh, data behind it, you know, certification. So mm -hmm. it shows that you've got a certain amount of material um, and that's often used with IVDs as well. So. I think, too, 
ideally it would be like the certified material or a, a reference method, but you could also compare to, I think, other devices on the market. Um, so doing a, that, going back to our discussion on comparative testing, where if, you know, it's so new or so novel, maybe it's a new analyte or a new marker in this space, and really there's only one product on the market and you sort of want to do a me too, if, if you can't really deduce what your reference method would be, perhaps your best option would be just to compare to something that's already out there. If you can make a justification, you don't want to say argument, right? But justification mm -hmm. for equivalence. Yeah, an ideal is CE mark product. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's that'd be the ideal comparison. Yeah, something that's already gone through. So, yeah. How does this tie into EU reference laboratories? Well, they're required for class Ds and they're still being established in, in Europe. So that's new. And I think certain, I'm, I don't know all the details. I don't know anyone who can help me out here, but certainly some products will need, class Ds will need to be sent off to reference laboratories for independent testing. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, I think, you know, we're kind of waiting to see how this plays out as the, you know, as, as applications are sent into notified bodies, but certainly yeah, that, that will be a requirement for the class Ds. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. We, we actually still have a ton of questions to ask and still have some coming in. So we're, we're going to definitely schedule a part two of this live show because we, we, we only got about halfway through our list.